Thank you, Jesus. What an incredible song that is. I love that song. It's declaring something that is very countercultural. We believe, as the previous song said, there's only one substance in the universe that can cleanse the human soul, the human being of their sin. It's very exclusive. He says in John 14 that I am the way, the truth and the life. That's not a very popular line of thinking in 21st century Western world where we're endlessly told, speak your truth. Your truth's the biggest lie ever told. You say, how can you say that? Because it's born out of a spirit that is directly opposed to the truth, who is Jesus. All roads don't lead to heaven. One road leads to heaven. If this is making you feel uncomfortable, that's my point. John's Gospel, what an incredible journey. Got to understand, Jesus was hated because of what he said about things like this. The ruling class, the elites, the wealthy, the educated, people in power hated him. And he said to his disciples in about John 7, they were not up to that point yet. But just remember, when the world hates you, it hated me first. So there's things that you're going to say and proclaim as a Christ follower that some of your friends are going to go, who do you think you are? What do you think you're talking about? Don't forget some of the words to this song. His name is power. His name is is healing. His name is life. Don't let any tricky skullduggery ideological framework about how the world works lure you down a path of deception. His name is Jesus. Today's message, I hope, when I get to it in a moment, is going to set you on fire. But I want to say something else about church this morning before I get you to sit down. In the stories we've been reading in John's Gospel, it doesn't matter who Jesus encounters, they're changed. Maybe healed, maybe enamored, as in love him. Right to the other extreme, total hatred, plotting to kill him. And I'm wondering if it's possible to enter his presence and not be changed. So I thought about that and I thought, how many times have I come to church, walked in the door, gone through the worship, the offering, preaching, all to call, I'm the pastor by the way, and gone home and thought, well, that was good. But actually, not really conscious that anything's changed. I want to say something a little bit blunt, but I want you to think about it during the week. If I come to church and don't feel anything, don't sense anything, you're allowed to get really cranky in church. You're allowed to get mad as hell. 
Because Jesus will do that to you. Don't be thinking, oh, it's Jesus' love and I'm going to feel good about being here. You might be sitting there right now getting worked right up into a real tiss. Because that's the effect he has on an unsurrendered heart. The Pharisees' problem wasn't that they didn't encounter Jesus, as they would not surrender. So I'm going to leave that with a hanging thought. Is it possible to sit in church and do nothing, be nothing, feel nothing? Yes. The issue might be surrender. Do you need to lay something down at Jesus' feet this morning? Let me close what I'm saying with a prayer and we'll get into the message. Father, right now, we pray for the Holy Spirit to move over us as a congregation gathered here and as people watching online, either live or later on in the week, that by your Spirit, you'd stir us up afresh today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Thanks, crew, for leading us in that incredible moment of moments of worship. Yeah, go on, give them a hand. It is so nice to see you this morning. I can see some faces in the congregation that I don't actually know, and so I need to say my name's Pastor Bruce and been the senior minister of the church with my wife Julie for over 27 years. And uh, she's down at our other location at Parkside this morning and always sends her greetings and love to you all. So welcome. If you're first time in our church, welcome, welcome, welcome. If you're back having a bit more of a look or you've just decided this is home, uh, you're very, very welcome. And if this, you know this is home, well, I'm talking to the family this morning. Amen? Yes. So let's just consider this a bit of a fireside chat with attitude. So we're going through John's Gospel. We're up to chapters 11 through 13 this morning. So this message is covering three chapters. And in the narrative of John's Gospel, there's a change of pace and a change of tone coming at chapter 11. Uh, in fact, the story about the raising of Lazarus from the dead is the last miracle Jesus does besides being raised from the dead himself. There's no other miracles recorded in John's Gospel from this point on. And there's been heaps up until this point, or quite a few. And so there's a, there's a change of tone deliberately. And as we read this story about the death of Lazarus, it's got some problems for me of consistency. Like, what's, what is God up to? So let's just read the first uh, few verses of chapter 11 together in the NIV. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Interesting little sidekick there. That little bracketed comment in chapter 11 isn't recorded until chapter 12. So then you go, hmm, a bit of narrative criticism can come into the mix there to work out John wrote this after the fact. And he's assuming that the readers actually know this because they know the story about the hair and the anointing. And even though chronologically in the narrative, this is before that. So anyway, just a little bit of a sight. I like those sorts of little anomalies in the Bible. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love. Say love. Oh, come on. Say love. love. If you said I love you, to your, if you're married to your spouse, like that first one, Say, love. love. Got to get a bit of grunt to that word. Love's not a wimpy little soft, oh, I love you. Love is like a powerful, life-changing experience of somebody. 
It's not I love spaghetti. It's not I love whatever. It's like when we're talking about love in the Bible, we're talking about something that is incredibly important and that's part of the point of this message this morning. The one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that the Son of God, uh, God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Say loved. loved. That's better. Let's do it again. Loved. loved. Oh, three times. Say it again. Loved. Thank you. Uh, where did I get up to? Yep, 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 yep. Verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he went straight there and they said, got to get on the moped and get there fast. No, he stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Now, you've got to remember, in Jesus' time, Facebook hadn't been invented. In Jesus' time, FaceTime conversations, video calls. Mary and Martha didn't send out a video call to Jesus wherever he was. But let's just assume it took the messengers who would have been on foot a few days to get to him. He decides, well, I'm not going back for two days. And then if it took the other guys two days to get there, he waited two days. It's easy to understand why it says that he was dead in the tomb for four days, at least. So he's sick and he died. He's been dead. When Jesus gets to him, he's been dead for four days. Jesus' reluctance seems harsh. And this story contrasts with the situation in chapter 4. Do you remember a royal official came to Jesus and said, oh, my son's sick. Can you come and heal him? And Jesus says, go, your son's going to be okay. And the story goes on in chapter 4 to explain that Jesus didn't go near this person. But at his word, and the father goes back and his his, uh, officials come to him and say, oh, your son's been healed. When did he get healed? And they compare notes and it was exactly the time that Jesus uttered those words. So let's just say remote. So remote. A remote healing is in Jesus' repertoire. So if you're a thinking person, which I I like to think I am, I'm thinking, so what's up in this story? Jesus could have just said, Bob's your uncle. Could have said, Lazarus is completely healed. He does say that it's not going to end in death, but that doesn't tell us anything about what's going to transpire. He didn't do a remote healing and he didn't go. Are you confused? That's how Jesus interacts with me sometimes. I get confused. What is God up to? So let's read on. What is the deal? And I prayed and I said, God, what is the deal in this chapter? Why? We've got that one in chapter 4. Seems pretty... Miracles are a piece of cake for Jesus. He hasn't got any trouble doing a miracle. But he didn't do one here yet. And the question that I kept pondering, and I came to this, the difference between chapter 4... And chapter 11 is love. The royal official was at the random dude that Jesus had no, say this word, relationship. No relationship with. Mary, Martha and Lazarus were close, dear, dearly loved friends. He's going to respond to their need 
differently to some random. And sure, he does a miracle. But I reckon chapter 11 of John's Gospel is more about something besides the miracle-working power of Jesus. So let's read on. Verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Let's just say the mourning, the brokenness, the brutal reality of a death was like a pool of darkness over all those people. Friends from miles around had come. They were doing the traditional um, Mediterranean ancient Mediterranean mourning stuff, loud wailing, dust being thrown in the air. It's just a pretty depressing place. And Jesus walks into this mess on purpose. Let me say that again, on purpose. He didn't need to. He could have fixed this before he even got there. He's actually walked into a mess of human brokenness. On purpose. Let's read on in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord. They replied. You may have all been told this as you were growing up. If you were brought up in a Christian home, the shortest verse in the Bible, this one coming, verse 35, Jesus wept. Just contemplate that for a minute. The one being in the universe who at the snap of a finger could have prevented this death is now in the midst of a whole bunch of mourning, broken people dealing with the brutal reality of the mortality of human beings. And he weeps with them. And they said, see how he loved him. Say loved. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? See, they didn't get the point. You might have sometimes angrily said to God, why can't I have my miracle? Why can't I be healed? Why did that happen? Why didn't you intervene? This story helps us to get a handle on that. What's more important to Jesus than any miracle is you. You loved and knowing that you're loved by him. Sometimes we get our miracles. I've worked out, oftentimes we don't. If we're a miracle-seeking Pentecostal, if I'm a good Christian, God will perform a miracle. Uh Uh-uh. No, Jesus is God, is love. The ultimate gift of Jesus to you and me is love. Whether we live or die, whether we're of sound mind or out of our mind, whether we're some kind of physical or mental impediment or so or not, whether we're a smart person or a bit of a thickhead, been reading some stuff this week about the world's solution to that is equality. Got to give everybody equal. We've got to get rid of inherited wealth. 
because it's, it's the root of problems. It's, it's systemic disadvantage for people who don't inherit wealth. And so you've always got there's all this stuff the world's trying to fix without Jesus. And they'll never will. It'll go on forever. Political ideologies will flow out of the rafters of parliament here, there, everywhere, and nothing will fix us except Jesus. So, my big question is my first point this morning is what's going on in here for you with the love of God? It's the love of God encountering the word surrendered and a surrendered heart. Maybe you're still cranky with God because he let you down. Maybe you're confused about God because he doesn't make sense. Well, that's, that's easy fixed. He doesn't make sense. See, Jesus stirred the pot. The miracle stirred up jealousy and hatred amongst the religious leaders. But I reckon he was prepared to take the risk of that in order to have the moments of incredibly deep soul heartwarming, life-changing love. When you come to church on a Sunday morning, you might be hanging out for a miracle. But what if God's agenda is, Bruce, you need to know my love. You need to know my unconditional grace. You need to get over holding on to things that people have said and done to you because I've gotten over and moved on from the things you've said and done about me. My grace is sufficient for you. Let's put the miracles at the background. They're not, they're not unimportant. Jesus did lots of them. They're awesome. We're Pentecostals. We're into miracles. The gifts of the Spirit. But they're all things that God's given us to enable us to look Tegan in the eye, to look Dave in the eye, to look Marlene in the eye and say, I love you. Not in any inappropriate physical mental a meaning of the word whatsoever. It's, it's, in a, it's just a soul connection that only God can give. That's why I come to church. But what are you here for? And I don't ask that in, as a place of criticism. I'm asking it as a place of contemplation. What are you doing at the moment? What's actually going on in here right now? Are you encountering this fount we talked about in that song? The, the blood of Jesus that washes you. Why sit in church feeling ashamed about something you said or did this week when he's offering to miraculously, surprisingly, miraculously come to you and deposit his love on you and in you, revive you, refresh you, renew you, call you out of the tomb of darkness. The miracle might happen and the miracle that would happen is that the love of God shines brightly in our hearts this morning. If that's happened, this message has got home. The love of God. Don't go after something else. Go after him. Let's read on. So, yep, the cranky people got cranky. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. That's a key word in this gospel as well. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. They were worried. This guy, Jesus, was causing trouble. 
We live in a Western world where the church has had a lot of clout in lots of our social programs, a lot of our political structures, a lot of the stuff that we would say we value as Westerners have arisen out of the Christian faith. There are lots of non-believers and secular humanists who'd want to say, no, it's all arisen out of the age of reason, the Enlightenment's brought us rubbish. Let me just say that that is complete tripe. What it is, is the love of God for people. And we're going to find in the decades ahead, I'll be dead and buried, I hope, but each generation's been born into a season by God's grace to deal with increasing hostility towards the church. You Just watch it. It's, it's manifesting already. So get ready to get uncomfortable about being a Christ follower, not because we're defeated, but because... What we have to say just doesn't quite fit the narrative increasingly. And that's okay, because God will be with us. And he's, he's shown us it might end up costing you your life. It's like, I'm not really sure I'm ready for that just yet. But he was. He leads the way. So they plotted to kill him. Um, so leading, leave a few verses out, verse 53 and 54. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. What a level of hatred for a guy. All that Jesus was doing was healing sick people, raising a dead dude, telling people that he was actually the son of God, very offensive to the religious leaders. They couldn't see past the miracles to who he was, the miracle worker. But anyway, um, therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region Near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. Some of the commentaries I looked at for that, they're a little uncertain where that Ephraim is, but it's possibly about 40 miles north of, I thought it might be south down the desert, but it was 40 miles north on the mountain range toward, back towards Nazareth, uh, apparently, but complete conjecture. So he moved away from Jerusalem, which is the hotbed. Like in this story, the whole story of John's gospel is a journey to Jerusalem and the cross. And Jerusalem represents the unsaved heart. It represents, yay, the king is coming. Your moment in worship or your moment with God where you recognise Jesus is Lord. And then he puts his foot down and says, right, now it's time for all of this other stuff to go. And the crowd, as you know, turned on him and he was crucified. Um, yeah, I just, I'll move on. <laughs> uh, dear, thank you, Jesus. Here we go, people. So my first point, if you're taking notes this morning, I, I skipped over that for some reason, his deep love for each one of us can be revealed to us in our extreme pain. We actually want Jesus to be bubbling up when we're feeling all good. Ooh, it's nice, the meeting was... And that's good, nothing wrong with that. Oh, did you feel the presence at church this morning? It's like, yeah, it's good. But what about when you're in your own home with the doors locked or closed and you're sitting in a dark place, physically, literally, maybe, or metaphorically, feeling lonely, abandoned, broken, completely destroyed? This story is for you because Jesus will walk into that dark place and tell you I love you 
point number one. Chapter 12, Jesus is anointed. This is where Mary puts oil on his feet. Interesting, his feet, not his head. Um, we could preach a whole sermon about that, but we won't this morning. The tension in the story is palpable. The Pharisees hate him because of what he has said about himself. So John 12, 44, Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. Hence our theme. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as light, as a light, so that no one who believes in me should be in the darkness. I want to say to you in that chapter, you read it in your own time, chapter 12, there's just the narrative is increasingly, it's a perfectly written narrative of tension. So the plot in the story has got tension in it. Any good storymaker will give you a story that's got you on the edge of your seat, leaning in. If you've been to a movie where you've gone, this is a walkthrough, boring movie, it's because the person who wrote the screenplay didn't actually get the balance right in the story with this tension. There's a tension in it. So I want to say my second point here is entering into his presence, which is another one of the words that we're focusing on, surrender and to navigate and timing with God, sent. Entering into his presence can stir great tension within us. Tegan will tell you as a testimony about before she got saved at church, the day that I didn't have an altar call, when she was ready to give her life to Jesus. And I want to say her journey before that was one of this great tension. There's this wrestle on the inside about do I, don't I, will I, won't I, is it true, isn't it true, is God real, no, is God not real, Was there, can you believe what the pastor says because people say this, it's like who says the Bible is true, there's this almighty tension. Jesus is completely okay with that. He doesn't go, ooh, this guy's going to be a tough nut. He just keeps walking with you, keeps talking with you, keeps on loving you. Say love. love. Oh, come on, say it again. Love. If this message is getting through, you've got to get an attitude about love. Love. Oh, come with you. some of you got it. Come on, over this side. Hit, get, hit me with a six. Love. Love. Over this side. Love. Great. Great. Then we move into chapter 13. The mule's in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. He knew that the Father had put all things under his power and they had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Obviously, in the physical point of view, the ultimate cultural expression of servanthood. Jesus has just declared he's the teacher and Lord, but he's showing them that the way love operates is to serve. The way love operates is to not lord it over people. So woven into the narrative, however, is another intense level because of relationship, of relational destruction. Fancy deliberately keeping in your inner circle a betrayer. If you're an employer and you become aware one of your employees 
you're stealing money from you or saying bad things about you, usually it's the door. As soon as you find out. Jesus knew before he started this dude was stabbing him in the back. I'm not saying if you're an employer, let them stay, by the way. That would be bad counsel. Um, It's a different situation. My point is, however, that love knows that it wins. Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 13, the greatest of these, like love always wins. Don't forget that. You can't outlove God. He's relentlessly loving you. He's relentlessly loving me. And he knows what I'm about. He knows what a completely pathetic human being I am in some areas of my life. I am completely hopeless in self-discipline in some areas of my life. I'm not going to go into them because that's between me and God. But um, needless to say, I'm very aware of his grace in my life because I need it. All I'm going to say to you is you need it and it's available. Let me say it again. It's available. He's not going, oh, that Jesse, oh, he's got to shape up before he gets any grace from me. No, he doesn't think like that. He loves Jesse. Boom. He says, Jesse needs grace. Boom. Jesse, just come and get it. And Jesse's got to work out, here's that word, surrender. Do you need God's grace to touch your heart this morning? Let me say the smartest thing you could say to God is, I give up. I'm going to stop fighting. I'm going to stop longing. I'm going to stop getting worked up. I'm just going to lay it down and let you touch me with your grace. Why don't we stand to our feet? I reckon I've got to my point number three. No matter how far from him you've strayed, he will never leave you or forsake you. Why don't you just close your eyes for a minute to give yourself a little bit of private space. You know, meeting like this, we can become, and we should become, quite aware of the people who are around us and near us. There's something about hot coals, spending time together, which is a fabulous thing. But there's also the time for us to allow him, the one who loves us, to knock on the door of our heart. Say, is today the day you're going to surrender that issue? Is today the day you say, yes, Lord? Maybe for the first time. Or yes, Lord, for the hundred thousandth time and you're laying something else about your broken humanity in front of God and saying, Lord, here I am. You can't confess what you don't know. I've worked out some of the things I'm bringing before God now I didn't know happened or were in me until I'd lived 65 years. And now some of those things are right in front of me. I go, God, I, I so need to get that out of the way. I'm sorry I didn't even see it last week, last year, in the 1990s, in the 1980s. I didn't see it in the 1970s. And I sure as heck didn't see it in the 1960s. So Father, I pray right now that every one of us would have an encounter with the loving, 
embrace and warmth of our Heavenly Father. That your goodness, which knows no bounds, would wash over us. Lord, I pray right now that there would be courage and boldness on the inside of each person in the meeting, listening online, to lay something down before you this morning and say, Lord, here it is. Because, Lord, you are relentless, pursuing us, relentless in unconditionally loving us and walking us into your family with a full inheritance in Jesus' name. Amen. Front of our church is always open for prayer business at the end of our meetings. If I said something that's caused a bit of a stir on the inside, don't go out the door stirred up unnecessarily. Come and talk to me. I'd love to pray with you. If you prayed in your heart of hearts as I was praying those words then, surrender to God. And you know you surrendered for the very first time. You need to come and speak to me as well. Don't walk out the door and go, oh, it's a bit of private business with, between me and God. Well, that's true. But faith demands something of us. And faith is a step out of our comfort zone. So come and talk to me about it. I'd love to pray with you as well. Get some of our team to help you on your journey. We're going to stand, continue standing. We're going to sing a song to close. And uh, then we spend some time over coffee. Enjoy the rest of your long weekend. Um, Whatever you're up to, I hope that you have a lot of fun loving people.